Welcome to the library, dear listener. Please, take a seat. I have a story for you. Settle in. This is The Sign of the Four by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Chapter 10. The End of the Islander. Our meal was a merry one. Holmes could talk exceedingly well when he chose, and that night he did choose. He appeared to be in a state of nervous exultation. I have never known him so brilliant. He spoke on a quick succession of subjects. On miracle plays, on medieval history, on Stradivarius violins and the Buddhism of Ceylon, and on the warships of the future, handling each as though he had made a special study on it. His bright humor marked the reaction from his black depression of the preceding days. Athelney Jones proved to be a sociable soul in his hours of relaxation and faced his dinner with an air of bon vivant. For myself, I felt elated at the thought that we were nearing the end of our task, and I caught something of Holmes's gaiety. None of us alluded during dinner to the cause which had brought us together. When the cloth was cleared, Holmes glanced at his watch and filled up three glasses with port. One drink to the success of our little expedition. And now it's time we were off. Do you have a pistol, Watson? My old surface revolver in my desk. You'd best take it then. We should be prepared. The cab is at the door. It was a little past seven before we reached the Westminster Wharf and found our launch waiting. Holmes eyed it critically. Is there anything to mark this as a police boat? Just that green lamp at the side. Ah, yes, that won't do. Take it off. The small change was made. We stepped aboard and the ropes were cast off. Jones, Holmes, and I sat to the stern. There was one man at the rudder, one to tend the engines, and two burly police inspectors forward. Where to? To the tower. Tell them to stop opposite Jacobson's yard. We should be able to catch anything on the river with this. Well, not quite, but there aren't many launches that can beat us. We'll have to catch the Aurora, and she has a reputation for being quick. You remember how annoyed I was at being stalled by so small a thing? Yes. Well, I gave my mind a thorough rest from this by plunging into a chemical analysis. One of our greatest statesmen has said that a change of work is the best rest. So it is. When I succeeded in dissolving the hydrocarbon which I was working on, I came back to our problem of the Sholtos and thought the whole matter over again. My boys had been up and down the river without result. The launch was not at any landing stage or wharf, nor had it returned. Yet, it is unlikely to have been scuttled to hide their traces 
though it always remained as a possible hypothesis if all else failed. I knew this man, Small, had a certain degree of low cunning, but I didn't think him capable of delicate finesse. That is usually a product of higher education. I, then, reflected that since he'd certainly been in London some time, as we had evidence that he maintained a continual watch over Pondicherry Lodge, he could not leave at a moment's notice. He would need some time, if only a day, to arrange his affairs. That was the balance of probability, at any rate. It seems a little weak. It's more probable that he'd arranged his affairs before he set out upon his expedition. No, I don't think so. This lair of his would be too valuable a retreat to give it up until he was sure that he could do without it. But a second thought struck me. Jonathan Small must have felt that the peculiar appearance of his companion, however much he may have disguised him, would lead to gossip, and possibly be associated with this Norwood tragedy. He's sharp enough to see that. They'd started from their headquarters under the cover of darkness, and he would want to return before it was broad daylight. Now it was past three o'clock, according to Mrs. Smith, when they got to the boat. That would be quite bright, and people would be about in an hour or so. Therefore, I argued, they did not go very far. They paid Smith well to hold his tongue, reserved his launch for the final escape, and hurried to their lodgings with the treasure box. In a couple of nights, when they had time to see what view the papers took and whether there was any suspicion, they would make their way under cover of darkness to some ship down at Gravesender in the Downs, where no doubt they had already arranged for passages to America or the colonies. But the lunch? They could not have taken that to their lodgings. Quite so. I argued that the launch must be close by, in spite of its invisibility. I put myself in Small's place and looked at it as a man of his capacity would. He would probably consider that to send back the launch or to keep it at a wharf would make pursuit easy if police got on his trail. How, then, could he conceal the launch and yet have her at hand when wanted? I wondered what I should do myself if I were in his shoes. I could only think of one way of doing it. I might hand the launch over to some boat builder or repairer with directions to make a small change. She would then be removed to his shed or yard and so be concealed while, at the same time, I could have her at a few hours' notice. Seems simple enough. It's these simple things which are extremely liable to be overlooked. However, I determined to act on the idea. I started in this harmless seaman's rig and inquired at all the yards down the river. Nothing at fifteen, but at the sixteenth, Jacobson's. I learned that the Aurora had been handed over to them two days ago by a wooden-legged man, with some trivial directions as to her rudder. There ain't naught amiss with her rudder, said the foreman. There she lies with the red streaks. At that moment, who should come but Mordecai Smith, the missing owner? He was rather worse for the liquor. I would not have known him, but he bellowed out his name in the name of his launch. I want her tonight at eight o'clock, said he. Eight o'clock, sharp. Mind, for I have two gentlemen who won't be kept waiting. They had evidently paid for him as well, for he was flush with money, chucking shillings around to the men. I followed him a distance, 
but he went into an alehouse, so I went back to the yard and, happening to pick up one of my boys along the way, I stationed him as a sentry over the launch. He is to stand at the water's edge and wave his handkerchief when they start. We'll be lying in wait in the stream, and it'll be a strange thing if we do not take men, treasure, and all. You've planned it all very neatly, whether they're the right men or not. But if the affair were in my hands, I'd have had a body of police in Jacobson's yard and arrested them when they came down. Which would have been never. This man Small's a pretty shrewd fellow. He'd send a scout on ahead, and if anything made him suspicious, lie low for another week. But you might have stuck to Mordecai Smith and so been led to their hiding place. In that case, I would have wasted my day. I think that it's a hundred to one against Smith knowing where they live. As long as he has liquor and good pay, why should he ask questions? They send him messages with what to do. No, I thought over every possible course, and this is the best. That's Jacobson's yard, who's gently up and down here under cover of this string of lighters. There's my sentry at his post but no sign of a handkerchief. Suppose we go downstream a short way and lie and wait for them. We've no right to take anything for granted. It's certainly ten to one that they go downstream, but we cannot be certain. From this point, we can see the entrance of the yard, and they can hardly see us. It'll be a clear night with plenty of light. We must stay where we are. See how the folks swarm over there in the gaslight. They're coming from work in the yard. Dirty-looking rascals. But I suppose every one has some little immortal spark concealed about him. You wouldn't think it to look at them. There is no a priori probability about it. A strange enigma is man. Someone calls him a soul concealed in an animal. Winwood Reed is good on the subject. He says that... While the individual man is an insoluble puzzle, in the aggregate, he becomes a mathematical certainty. You can, for example, never foretell what any one man will do, but you can say with precision what an average number will be up to. Individuals vary, but percentages remain constant, so says the statistician. But do I see a handkerchief? Surely there is a white flutter there. Yes, it's your boy. I can see him clearly. And there's the aurora. And going like the devil! Full speed ahead, Engineer! After that launch with the yellow light! By heaven, I'll never forgive myself if she proves to have the best of us! She is very fast. I doubt if we'll catch her. We must catch her! Keep on it, Stokers! Make her do all she can. Even if we burn the boat, we must have them! We were fairly after her now. The furnaces roared and the powerful engine whizzed and clanked, like a great metallic heart. Her sharp, steep prow cut through the river water and sent two rolling waves to the right and to the left of us. With every throb of the engines, we sprang and quivered like a living thing. One great yellow lantern in our bows threw a long, flickering funnel of light in front of us. Right ahead, a dark blur upon the water showed us where the aurora lay and the swirl of white foam behind her spoke of the pace at which she was going. We flashed past barges, steamers, and merchant vessels, in and out, behind this one and around the other. Voices hailed us out of the darkness. 
But still the Aurora thundered on, and still we followed close upon her track. Pile it on, men! Pile it on! Get every pound of steam you can! <laughs> I think we've gained a little. I'm sure of it. We'll catch up with her in a few minutes. At that moment, a tug with three barges in tow blundered in between us. It was only by putting our helm down hard that we avoided a collision. And before we could round them and recover our way, the Aurora had gained a good 200 yards. She was still well in view, and the murky, uncertain twilight was setting into a clear and starlit night. Our boilers were strained to their utmost, and the frail shell vibrated and creaked with the fierce energy which was driving us along. We had shot through the pool, past West India docks, and down the long depth for reach, and up again after rounding the Isle of Dogs. The dull blur in front of us resolved itself now clearly enough into the dainty Aurora. Jones turned our searchlight upon her so that we could plainly see the figures upon her deck. One man sat by the stern with something black between his knees, over which he stooped. Beside him lay a dark mass which looked a little like a Newfoundland dog. The boy held the tiller, while against the red glare of the furnace I could see the old smith, stripped to the waist and shoveling coals for dear life. There may have been some doubt at first as to whether we were really pursuing them, but now as we followed every winding and turning which they took, there could no longer be any question about it. At Greenwich we were 300 paces behind them, at Blackwall we could not have been more than 250. I of course many creatures in many countries during my checkered career, but never did sport give me such a wild thrill as this mad flying manhunt down the Thames. Steadily, we drew in upon them yard by yard. In the silence of the night, we could hear the panting and clanking of their machinery. The man in the stern still crouched upon the deck, and his arms were moving as though he were busy, while every now and then he would look up and measure with a glance the distance which still separated us. Nearer we came, and nearer. Stop! We were not more than four boat lengths behind them, both boats flying at a tremendous pace. It was a clear reach of the river, with barking level upon one side and the melancholy Plumstead marshes on the other. At our hail, the man in the stern sprang up from the deck and shook his two clinched fists at us, cursing the while. Blast you, police. The treasure is mine now. No, no, no. I've worked too hard for this. He was a good-sized, powerful man. As he stood poising himself with legs astride, I could see from the thigh downward there was but a wooden stump on the right side. At the sound of his strident, angry cries, there was movement in the huddled bundle upon the deck. It straightened itself into a little black man, the smallest I had ever seen, with a great misshapen head topped with tangled, disheveled hair. Holmes had already drawn his revolver, and I whipped out mine at the sight of this savage, distorted creature. He was wrapped in some sort of dark ulster or a blanket, which left only his face exposed. But that face was enough to give a man a sleepless night. Never have I seen features so deeply marked with all bestiality and cruelty. His small eyes glowed and burned with a somber light, and his thick lips were pulled back from his teeth which grinned and chattered at us with fury. Fire if he raises his hand. 
We were within a boat's length by this time, and almost within touch of our quarry. I can see the two of them now as they stood, the white man with his legs far apart, shrieking out curses, and the unhallowed dwarf with his strong yellow teeth gnashing at us in the light of our lantern. It was well that we had so clear a view of him. Even as we looked, he plucked out from under his covering a short, round piece of wood, like a school ruler, and clapped to his lips. Our pistols rang out together. He whirled round, threw up his arms, and with a kind of choking cough fell sideways into the stream. I caught one glimpse of his venomous, menacing eyes amid the white swirl of the waters. At the same moment, the wooden-legged man threw himself upon the rudder and put it down hard, so that his boat made straight in for the southern bank, while we shot past her stern, only clearing her by a few feet. We were round after her in an instant, but she was already nearly at the bank. It was a marshland, with pools of stagnant water and beds of decaying vegetation. The launch, with a dull thud, ran up upon the mudbank, with her bow in the air and her stern flush with the water. The fugitive sprang out, but his stump instantly sank its whole length into the sodding soil. God damn you. In vain he struggled and writhed. Not one step could he possibly take, either forwards or backwards. He yelled in impotent rage and kicked frantically into the mud with his other foot but his struggles only bored his wooden pin in deeper to the sticky bank. When we brought our launch alongside, he was so firmly anchored that it was only by throwing the end of a rope over his shoulders that we were able to haul him out and to drag him, like some evil fish, over our side. The two smiths, father and son, sat sullenly in their launch, but came aboard meekly enough when commanded. Come along, you two. The Aurora herself we hauled off and made fast to our stern. A solid iron chest of Indian workmanship stood upon the deck. This, there could be no question, was the same that had contained the ill-omened treasure of the Sholtos. There was no key, but it was of considerable weight, so we transferred it carefully to our own little cabin. As we steamed slowly upstream again, we flashed our searchlight in every direction, but there was no sign of the islander. Somewhere in the dark ooze at the bottom of the Thames lie the bones of that strange visitor to our shores. See here? We were hardly quick enough with our pistols. One of those darts. <sighs> Buck was on our side tonight. There, sure enough, just behind where we had been standing stuck one of those murderous darts which we knew so well. It must have whizzed between us at the instant we fired. Holmes smiled at it and shrugged his shoulders in his easy fashion, but I confess that it turned me sick to think of the horrible death which had passed so close to us that night. And that is all for this week. Thank you so much for joining us. If you would like, the Tea Room is open for you on Patreon. You'll get each episode early and ad-free. Today's episode featured the talents of Joshua as Sherlock, Paul as Watson, Austin as Athlone Jones, and me, Willow, as your narrator. Links will be in the show notes. Until next week, take care, and we'll see you soon. <laughs>